episode 361 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to be expressing views that are not shared by our family, our friends, our clients, our institutions, and I, frankly, we may disavow them within weeks. I'm going to be interviewing Bruce Schneier, who everybody who listens to our podcast is familiar with. Uh, he's a renowned technologist, privacy and security bureau, an adjunct lecturer in po public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And he's written a, an interesting set of thoughts on AI and hacking that we just wanted to explore. But first, we're going to do the news roundup. Uh, and we've got a uh, terrific panel. Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, is here, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Nick Weaver is here, lecturer in the Computer Science Department. He always wants me to say lecturer to distinguish him from professors on the theory that lecturers actually care what their students are learning. And Michael Weiner, who is a Steptoe partner who comes on the show whenever we have antitrust problems to discuss. And we're going to ask him for a roundup of all the antitrust litigation that's focusing on big tech. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. So why don't we jump right in? The story that cannot be ignored this week is the Colonial Pipeline ransomware a compromise. Nick, uh, can you give us the background on this? Apart from a deep, dark sigh on the state of ransomware right now, so what appears to have happened is Colonial Pipeline is one of those companies you don't think about, but is critically important. So basically close to half of the gasoline, jet fuel, etc., on the East Coast passes through their pipelines. And they apparently got hit by a ransomware gang last week. The ransomware gang in question does the standard steal 100 gigabytes of data, threaten to release it, and encrypt the data so that backups are not sufficient. Apparently, this struck not their operations network, but the corporate side network. But the problem is the operations network has to speak to the corporate side network because you have to be able to bill people for that 45% of the gasoline transported along the East Coast. So they basically had to shut down their operations side until they know everything's cleaned up and start bringing it back up. So they could probably in an emergency, if people started to freeze in the dark, you would think that they could find a way to send bills by hand or to measure what's being delivered. Uh, I'm wondering whether this is a crisis now, but unlikely to become existential uh, because, as you say, it's the billing systems and other peripheral systems that are affected except that they don't know if said attackers were also able to get into the operations side. That would be disastrous. But, but, you know, getting into the operations system is a whole different thing. The coding is different. Everything is different. And I can imagine ransomware that says, we're going to blow up your pipeline if you don't uh, pay us. And you'd get a lot of money for that. Uh, but it's not clear that's the business model of the guys who attacked them. Except that the operation side user interface slash controls are all on Windows computers. And so that's actually all the same. 
Ah, and yeah. you take down the Windows controllers, you take down the company's ability to move product. And so what they're currently doing is they're basically bringing services back online in a careful manner designed to make sure that it minimizes disruption. And this is also an illustration of a situation where you have certain non-linearities on time. So if this pipeline's down for less than a week, it's going to be a blip apart from to their bottom line. But if things are down for more than a week, you can expect significant disruption of the entire East Coast economy. And in now, my plus, standard- Plus the stuff that's sitting in the pipeline doesn't just sit there, it starts to, it, disperse in ways that make it hard to actually deliver it. You end up with, pipelines are funny, but you're mixing a whole bunch of different products. And the longer they stay in the pipeline by themselves, the more mixed up they get and the harder it is to say, I delivered you what you asked for. People are gonna start saying, well, then what was all that jet fuel mixing with my gasoline for? Well, fortunately that I don't think is as big a concern because you have stuff in tanks, stays in tanks. And along the pipeline, you really only get mixing where you have uh, flow and contact. The bigger concern though is just long-term disruption. And so if I was on the East Coast, I would make sure my cars have full tanks of gas today. Yep. So the other, the political and policy aspect of this is in some ways just standard ransomware, right? But it could, produce gas shortages, disruptions, fear, a lot of problems that you usually don't get. And the administration's gonna be under more pressure to deal with this than they have with other ransomware cases. They have a executive order that's been in the works for quite a while, and it apparently has almost nothing to say about these kinds of problems. It's aimed at saying, if you sell to the US government, you have to do a better job of securing your products. But Colonial Pipeline is regulated by the government, but it's not producing stuff mainly for the government. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the Biden administration doesn't have to go back and redo its executive order to start saying something about how they're going to regulate more aggressively about ransomware liabilities and vulnerabilities. Yeah, but it's this ransomware epidemic is out of control. And this is where you can substitute my standard rant of it's time to destroy the cryptocurrency space, because that's the thing that has enabled this epidemic. Yeah, we're going to see more and more uh, on that. This has made a lot of things that were controversial, like the KYC requirement for using U.S. infrastructure. It's going to be a lot less controversial seeming if, if this colonial pipeline problem goes on much longer. All right. Uh, I, I have trouble taking this one seriously, but I, it, it is a serious risk, I guess. Apple has come out with AirTags and all of the focus has been on ways you can use AirTags to check to see whether your spouse is cheating on you. Nate, can you give us a little bit of background on AirTags and then explain why there's so much spousal abuse attention here? 
Yeah, and I think some of that attention is obviously legitimate. Look, Apple created this technology. Well, they didn't create this technology, but they created a product that that is pretty interesting, right? It, you can attach it to virtually anything. It's a small device that allows you to find things when you lose them or misplace them. Yeah, and, it's like tile, but it actually works. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and with virtually every product or type of technology, it can be misused, right? And and one of the things people have focused on is that you can drop this in somebody's perch or attach it to something or stick it, wedge it in the seat of their car and track them potentially without their knowledge. Now, Apple this deserves... Is, this, this is mainly because the device talks to every damned Apple phone it encounters and says, well, here's where I am, or actually you tell me where I am. Uh, and that all, I, Apple is basically turning every Apple phone into a kind of mesh network uh, for communicating about location. So you don't have to worry about whether you are near enough to the phone, uh, to the uh, device, or whether it has the built-in GPS capability. It borrows the phones that it's in communication with. Right. And so people are worried that, you know, abusive spouses or stalkers could attach this to to people they're they're trying to track and follow them around. And I think that's a legitimate concern. Apple, to their credit, has taken some steps to try to minimize that risk or at least mitigate it to some degree when it when the device is is away from the the person who who quote unquote owns it or whose iPhone account is attached to it, it will make a noise. Now people have said it's not loud enough and doesn't go on for long enough. And it doesn't start until three days after right. it's been following you around. Yeah. And the biggest criticism I think is that it doesn't right now alert you on other platforms. If you have one of these devices that's consistently close to you and it's not connected to your account, if you have an iPhone, it'll notify you. A notification will pop up and say, hey, there's an AirTag following you around. You might want to track it down and, and figure out who's trying to follow you. And that that is a creative and, and thoughtful protection that they've built into this thing. But it doesn't work on Android devices and other platforms. And so it's And it's that would be hard. Perfect. That would require a fair amount of cooperation with Google to get that to work. I, and I have to say, it does play to type that Apple's answer might be, yeah, you'll be fine if you just buy an Apple phone, an iPhone. Uh, but that's a little unfair because they, if you're Google, you might say, well, we might take our time and see how much heat these guys take for this uh, and eventually we'll work something out, but we'll make them pay pretty heavily to, to work this out. Right. And so I think if you were asked, is there more that Apple could reasonably be expected to do here? The answer is probably yes, but they have in their defense again, done more than Tile and some of their quote unquote competitors in this space. But I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that whatever they do is not going to be perfect. And big tech has successfully cultivated this image historically of an industry that is able to perform technological miracles and convince people that they can always have their cake and eat it too. And with these kinds of devices, if you want them, if you want to be able to uh, attach them to things so you can find them when you lose them, there's some risk that's going to go along with that. And this is one of them. And so, and there are some problems that you just can't technologize away. And, yeah, and I, I can... think that in some sense, they've 
done just enough to legitimize the problem, but not enough to solve it. Uh, Nick, any thoughts on this? Yeah. Firstly, I think the spousal tracking, abusive tracking is something that Apple at least has considered, but their product ends up being unique compared with Tile, etc., because it actually does take advantage of using third party to get positioning outside your home. But it's only slightly cheaper. So if you're willing to spend a couple hundred bucks, uh, you can stick a GPS tracker on the car that those are so freely available that this is not even a quantitative reduction in cost for abuse. It's just a fairly minor. That would be a, a typical Apple solution is they've solved the problem by making it really expensive to use their, their product. So only the best class of spousal abusers will actually use these uh, particular tools. Uh, well, that's the thing is those, the abusers with money will just use the GPS tracker. Yeah, the, I guess you're right. Yeah, I, although I suppose, it, 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 I think if you want to follow a car, there are a lot of ways to do it. If you wanted to follow somebody where they walked, this would be a much more attractive solution. Not by much. You can get some pretty small GPS trackers if you go Google on Amazon. Okay. okay. The more interesting thing is how Apple is doing this is they've actually got a really privacy sensitive network. So the AirTags are talking to the to random people's phones to ask where I am and uploading that information, but in a way that's designed to be very privacy sensitive for everybody. There's some real cool crypto behind it. So it sounds as though they're kind of reusing a lot of the stuff that they first rolled out in what we called the Gapple contact tracing solution. Similar, but it's more rolling out stuff that they already rolled out with Find My Mac okay. to, to be able to track those devices. But this is kind of an interesting thing because Apple and Amazon's doing a similar thing, have basically used their control of a platform to create a widely distributed, high reliability, high latency network. Yep. So, and that's a very interesting creation. There's going to be um, more other uses. There are going to be other uses for that, I'm sure. Yes. And this means that, among other things, Apple and Amazon are in a position to do some very interesting charge you services for Internet of Things devices where Apple and Google, or I mean, Apple and Amazon, and probably soon Google, are taking advantage of third-party devices and third-party bandwidth. So Amazon is doing this in their neighborhood uh, program where they're basically creating a mesh network of everybody's devices will carry everybody else's communications uh, in also a pretty high latency context. Uh, so it's clearly a concept that everybody's everybody big enough to force scale is eager to get started with. All right. So that that raises some competition law issues. And uh, I asked Michael Wiener to come on to give us a kind of update on where all the antitrust litigation action is so that we can kind of have a clear idea of 
who's got the most at stake, when we're going to see decisions, how big the, the charges are and, and which ones could make a real difference in the business of the companies that are under the gun. Uh, Michael, everybody who's a big name in tech and social media is being sued, but they're being sued for very different things, aren't they? Well, they are. So let me give you a quick rundown of at least the U.S. governmental suits, and then we won't even have time to talk about Europe and China and the U.K. and everybody else where the private suits, we're going to talk about one of them later on. So let's start with Facebook. So Facebook, you've got a, 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 the FTC case and the 46-state case. They're all consolidated. They're in D.C. And both of those cases allege, basically are attacking the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp as conduct that's in furtherance of Facebook's monopolization of a market for personal social networking. Right now, there are motions to dismiss that are pending. Facebook has moved to dismiss, saying that the FTC has to allege a valid legal theory and they have to present facts, a plausible basis to support that theory. And they say that personal social networking isn't a market and Facebook doesn't have monopoly power in it, even if it were a market, because when your grandkid is born, you can talk about that on, on iMessage or Twitter or TikTok or Snap or, and lots of other places. Facebook says those acquisitions were not exclusionary conduct. And by the way, the FTC, you had the opportunity to look at it and you cleared them. And WhatsApp isn't even a personal social network. They weren't then. They had no plans to be. Facebook also says, hey, wait a minute, FTC. You don't have the statutory power under Section 13B of the FTC Act. To, to bring this suit in federal court because you need to allege that Facebook is violating or is about to violate federal antitrust law. And by the way, the Supreme Court just decided on April 22nd, the AMG case, which sort of buys that theory that, that 13B says what it says and your remedy FTC is to bring an administrative case. So that's what's going on there. And so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say- To me, it sounds like this, is, this case is really late it's got real problems claiming that Instagram and uh, WhatsApp are the same as the social me media that Facebook itself provides. And then some of the other legal theories. This sounds like a case where you really have to hate Facebook to think that the antitrust case is going to make a difference. Well, it's tough to win a motion to dismiss at this stage of the right. game on theory. But yeah, going back to your original question, who's got the most at stake? Gee, on a worst case basis, I guess sell off Facebook, I'm sorry, sell off, sell off WhatsApp and Instagram, you still have the core Facebook. And then reinvent it. Yeah, it's not that hard. Okay. All right. How about uh, Google? So Google, here you've got the case that's uh, filed by DOJ and the state case that's led by Colorado. That one, there, it's got a trial date of September 12th, 2023. Uh, that's in, in D.C., and right now it's squabbling about discovery. Uh, you, you're asking for too much stuff. You've got too much stuff. Uh, those kinds of things, which are premature. Is 2023 a, an ambitious date? Doesn't sound very ambitious. It's, it sounds about typical. This is a big case, yeah. another, another period of time. You also have the, the Texas-led suit that's uh, down there in Texas. This is the one that, that adds the, the sexy allegation that Google and Facebook are, are, are price fixing and dividing markets. And that paid off Facebook, I'm sorry, but yeah, Google paid off Facebook for bowing out of the, the header bidding technology. There, there was some attention paid in the last few weeks because one of the Google lawyers apparently filed an unredacted version of some of the documents that should have been redacted. You got uh, some salacious details about Project Bernanke and, and Jedi Blue. And, and anytime you've got uh, 
you, you have code names. It's always interesting stuff. No trial date yet. Now there's a both sides have asked for trial dates. There's an 18 month gap in what what they're looking for, and then the complaint was filed in the middle of March. So that one's going to take a while to to, to work out. It's hard to see what how the merits are shaping up, but this sounds like the case where it's the biggest threat to the golden goose of any one of these companies. Going after ad tech for Google is going after their bread and their butter and dessert too. That's fair. It's an attack on on the core business uh, at Google. Meanwhile, you've got investigations continuing against Amazon and Apple. Uh, at, At Amazon, the reports are that the FTC and state AGs led by New York and California are investigating Amazon's practice of taking data uh, from third parties selling on the Amazon site and using it to develop uh, competing products. So yeah, that's important, but it's not the core Amazon business. Uh, Apple, uh, App Store policies are being investigated. We'll talk about the Epic lawsuit a little bit later, but the core allegations of the investigation seems to be that Apple is making third parties jump through hoops that its own apps don't need to, to comply with. So these are even more peripheral in a sense. They, they're not asking for divestment. They want to regulate in some way parts of the the tech company's business that are very lucrative, I'm sure, but not the core of their profitability. That, that's probably right. Although at this point, it, it, at least in the States, it's just investigations and we'll see where things go. But in, in terms of those investigations, as well as the ongoing suits against Google and, and Facebook, you know, to me, the question is, who's actually be making the decisions for the government on these? Well, we don't even have a head of antitrust at Justice, do we? We, we don't. At this point, there are sort of consistent rumors that there are two uh, leading uh, contenders for, for the head of the antitrust division. And by the way, Merrick Garland has got some antitrust background as a, uh, as a litigator, a professor, uh, and the judge. But the leading candidates are both sort of interesting for the head of the antitrust division. One of them is John Sallet, who is currently one of the leads on the state case against Google. He was formerly a stepped up partner. He was in the Obama White House. He's a, a brilliant guy. He's got some strong opinions. He probably served at justice with uh, Merrick Garland, as my bet. Uh, he's old enough to have done that. That's probably right. The other leading candidate is, is Jonathan Cantor. Jonathan left Paul Weiss last year to start his own firm. Maybe that was related to getting away from some conflicts that Paul Weiss might have presented for him. He sort of grew up working on Microsoft Matters with Rick Rule, but he's, for the last few years, led a lot of the anti-Google charge for private plaintiffs uh, and, and complainants. So you've got two guys who are sort of vested in the Google case, potentially becoming the, the head of the antitrust division. At the FTC, we have one nominee for a commissioner slot, no nominee yet. We have an acting chairman, but uh, no one's been, just have an acting chairman at this point. But the president has nominated Lena Khan for an FTC seat. Professor Khan is young. She wrote, while still a student, the article got tremendous attention, Amazon's antitrust paradox. She's talked about antitrust driving income inequality, reducing innovation, has called for breaking up Facebook and others. There's a second seat that's open at the FTC. Lots of rumors there, no front runner. But where these cases are, it's going to be the next generation of leadership that's going to be making the critical decisions. And we don't know who they are yet. So uh, the cases are, are ongoing, but let's see who's going to be making the decisions. 
All right. Well, it, it certainly sounds as though there's nobody who's going to be making these decisions who hasn't already made up their mind about a lot of what ought to be done. And that's all bad news for the tech companies. And it sounds like really bad news for Google because the two candidates there have already invested their careers in uh, being skeptical of Google's uh, motives. So it's going to be fun to watch. I, and, and I remember about Lena Khan only that she gave rise to the epithet antitrust hipster, or maybe it was hipster antitrust. Uh, <laughs> uh, she didn't. She didn't. It was my former associate who, who, who did that, uh, who came up with oh, that, that right? uh, just, just tweeting in the middle of the night. But, uh, well, no, she, but wasn't she a hipster antitrust person? Well, yeah, that would be fair. Yes. What, what's old is new. But yeah, that, that term, the careful commentators give my former associate credit in a footnote for that. Okay. And who is your former associate? Do you want to, uh, if you don't want to out him, that's okay. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll maintain his privacy. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, all right. That was terrific. Uh, uh, Nate, I, this is a fascinating and I, I, it comes back from time to time, which is a UN cybercrime convention, which gets everybody in an uproar because it's the Russians and to some extent the Chinese who are pushing for the UN or the ITU to get in and do this. And part of the uh, unhappiness is because we already have an international convention on cybercrime. I wouldn't say it's impressive in its effectiveness, but it is something that now uh, 60 or 70 countries have joined. And the Russians have always had kind of weird sovereignty objections to it. And, and yet now they want to do in what appears to be a more aggressive convention under the UN. What's going on here? I, I mean, it, look, this has to be viewed through the lens of Russian and Chinese efforts to rewrite the rules-based international order in their own image. I mean, they've chafed at some of these rules, including the rules governing cybercrime and even more broadly, the development and use of technology for years. And they've been engaged in what I would say is an increasingly brazen effort to change those rules, to gain greater legitimacy and greater freedom of action. <clears throat> the, they did pass this resolution in 2019 to supplant the Budapest Convention. It, it It's hard to tell how much support they're actually going to get ultimately for their position on this. That was a non-substantive in many ways. I mean, people were suspicious of it, but it didn't have any meat on the bones. It said, we're going to sit down and we're going to draft a new convention. And people went along with it. I think this week, the UN is going to consider a, a resolution to, to basically initiate the drafting process of this convention. We have a little bit better idea of where the Chinese and Russians want to go. Many are suspicious that, at least in part, this is going to try to enable and legitimize efforts to to, under the guise of cybercrime, crack down on dissidents within their borders, engage in various human rights abuses. And I think people are right to be suspicious of that. The U.S., among others, opposed that original effort to kick off this process and was unsuccessful. They've got a competing resolution this week that is is also trying to throw a little sand in the gears here. They're trying to ensure that, that the process will require consensus before it can proceed. 
and that it has to basically say that the this drafting process has to take account of existing international agreements in this space already. Um, By which they they mean the Budapest Convention, it, I assume. Exactly, the, primarily. I and, think and, that's and, what and they're And the Budapest about. Convention is really just the, the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, internationalized. It says we'll all make it illegal to engage in unauthorized access to a computer, and we'll all have a couple of people who will answer the phone if you've got a problem with our country. Yeah. And it's, I think, been a, a greater success on paper than it has been in practice. <laughs> it's, it hasn't really rallied support. And as you said, the Russians have always had some strange objections to it and have refused to join. I think that there, there are two things to, that I think are, are worth noting here. One, again, is the boldness with which some of our adversaries and these two in particular are seeking to change some of these rules to shape the world in their their image, as I said. The other is that the UN is increasingly becoming a difficult place to work because of that. And if you have to gain consensus, it's always been difficult, but it seems to me that it's become nearly impossible on many of these important issues. And it'll be interesting to see the degree to which you see things start to bifurcate over time where if you want to make progress on some of these important issues, it, it looks increasingly like you almost have to do it without involving the Chinese and the Russians and doing it outside of these longstanding fora that were an attractive place for the U.S. to go on many of these important issues. And it's increasingly the world's dividing along these lines and it is becoming almost impractical to go there. Yep. Sounds like that's right. So we'll get to watch this play out. The good news is that the the Russians and the Chinese are trying to do something in the UN, and that's so hard that they'll probably fail. <laughs> All right, Nate, let me ask you about this other thing. This is a story saying that the Biden administration's DHS wants to private with firms to monitor extremist chatter online. And it, it sounds, it, it's one of those things where there's clearly some proposal kicking around. It's a little unclear what, and DHS spokesmen have been trying to shoot down the wilder suggestions that they're trying to evade anti-surveillance rules. But if, what do you think is pretty clear DHS wants to do here? Yeah, I mean, DHS and others rightly got a lot of criticism after the January 6th insurrection, not seeing that thing coming, despite the fact that a lot of conversations were happening online, including many out in the open. There have been stories since that time that a number of those conversations have gravitated toward encrypted group chats, still large groups of people talking about this kind of stuff, but where DHS and the FBI and others face some legal and some policy constraints on their ability to investigate these things. And faced with those limitations and pressures to, to be monitoring what's happening, I think it's not surprising to me that they're looking at ways to gain insight into what's going on in these communities. If I, reading between the lines here, it sounds to me like they realize that there are a lot of people, private people, doing research in this space and paying close attention, not necessarily to 
individuals and, and investigating them deeply, but they're embedded in some of these forums and they're paying attention to what's happening and they're, they have their finger on the pulse of some of these trends and at a high level, some potential areas of risk or in some cases, potentially even real ongoing threats that may emerge. And yeah, they're just I, looking my, to take advantage of that. Uh, so I, it, when I have talked to people at DHS, the thing that comes up from time to time, and which I suspect this is a, a, a focused on, is if you're a federal agent and you log on to a site as part of your job, apparently you're supposed to say, hi, I'm FBI agent Schwartz. Uh, and you can't, you may not be able to just say, I'm John Schwartz, but even if you did, it would be easy for people to, to tell you're an agent. But uh, if you're a researcher, you can use your real name or you can use a fake name. And either way, it's not a violation of any policy or law. And that seems to be part of the problem. These are generally pretty open conversations, but joining as a Fed is sort of puts a damper on the discussion. Yeah, people clam up pretty quickly. And I think if they were, if they went that next step, if they being law enforcement went that next step and were working with these researchers closely and directing their activities online, some of those same rules would likely be imputed to them. And they'd have to, you know, potentially either get approval to conduct these kinds of undercover operations through them or those people would have to identify themselves as working on behalf of law enforcement, which would produce the same effect. So, so what I would expect is they'll take a pretty hands-off approach to some of this stuff, but try to develop relationships where some of whatever research those researchers decide to conduct can be shared with DHS and with law enforcement in other areas. And that might be enough to get them around some of the legal and policy constraints that they're subjected to. Yeah, well, speaking as a connoisseur of left-wing hypocrisy, I'm going to be really enjoying this effort to say that what DHS did with respect to Antifa monitoring is a shocking abuse of civil liberties across the board, and their failure to do even more to Trumpistas around the January 6th thing is a complete intelligence failure that has to be remedied with uh, strong measures. So squaring that circle would be fun to watch. Okay, let's <laughs> I go back. you'd say that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I could not resist. I'm sorry. Uh, some things are just meant to be. All right. Uh, Fortnite and Apple are in a bitter fight in which the, the real question is, which of these extraordinarily profitable uh, companies are we going to treat as the underdog? That seems to be the question. It, uh, it's it. The debate, Michael, is over the App Store, which Apple's already getting investigated for in general. But Fortnite is saying that Apple's abusing access to its users through the App Store. Yeah, well, Apple's uh, rules are you can't, you have to use Apple as your payment process. And Epic just completely flaunted that and put a, a, a store, a payment process within Fortnite. So Apple responded by yanking Fortnite off the App Store. Epic responded by suing for monopolization. 
Apple says that our marketplace policies are, are fair. We're not keeping people out, not excluding people. We're inviting developers into the kind of environment that, that they and users should want with privacy and reliability and security. We don't have any monopoly power. You can play Fortnite on non-Apple mobile devices as well as on PCs, Nintendo Switch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Epic's response was, was look, you've got 80% operating margins on your app store. Apple says that's incredibly misleading. Uh, Fortnite, by the way, had more than $5 billion in revenues in 2020, we learned last week. And I bet their operating margin is pretty substantial too. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, I'm sure that's true. But taking 30% off the top, Epic says, reduces, harms our ability to invest. What we want to do is keep prices low and save, save money for our consumers. Uh, and by the way, you, you're justifying this, Apple, because of your review process. But your review process has all sorts of problems with it. You let all sorts of, of bad things through. And so it, it must be pretense. This is just anti-competitive. So this trial is playing out. Last week was week one. This week is All-Star Economist Week. The lineup includes David Evans and Susan Ethy for Epic and Dick Schmalensee and Dan Rubenfeld for Apple. Cases being streamed online thanks to having the COVID courtrooms. That's great. I, 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 I wish they had Fortnite avatars doing the arguments. <laughs> All right. So I, any so we don't know until the economists have testified who's doing well and who's not. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, yes, I can speculate that it's just my own views, but really, I think they're going to be using the economists to tell the main stories. All right. Uh, Nick, uh, do you buy Apple's argument that they're providing this great security and other review of apps or are you... <laughs> Okay. Well, to start with, let's remember how Epic got this update pushed out to the phones that bypassed Apple's payments and Apple's rules as they submitted a minor update for expedited review and Apple said, okie doke. The other thing is in the standard tradition of corporate gray mail and lawsuits, we get all sorts of fun stuff found in discovery. For example, a few years back, Apple had a problem where a Chinese uh, pirated copy of Xcode for the Chinese developer market contained malcode that would create malicious apps. And so this was an, one of the early supply chain attacks. Yes. So this was an early supply chain attack using pirated software. And that resulted in a hundred million compromised app downloads. Now, Apple still sandboxes the apps, which limits some of the damage, but Apple made a deliberate decision in internal debate not to notify affected customers. Yeah, there's they, some correspondence where they seem to be saying, oh God, we'd have to translate this into all kinds of languages. Are you sure we know what we wanted? We want to do all this. So there was a kind of whininess to the uh, email exchanges. I thought. Well, let's face it. Whenever you get the lawyers involved, the rest of us techies are going to start whining. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Let me ask you about one other thing. I, there's a story about in the I think it's in the New York Times saying that three Washington Post journalists had their records, their phone records, subpoenaed, investigating what looks like a FISA leak from 2017, back when President Trump was angry as hell about FISA leaks. It took them until 2020, the prosecutors, 
before they actually went and got a subpoena for the records of people who wrote about that that FISA leak. Uh, I'm not sure what to say about that. It, it, it sounds as though they waited because they were trying to make sure this that, that they had no other option for figuring out who the leaker was before they went and asked for those records, which is what I think the procedures call for. Is there anything else to say about these subpoenas? Yes. You are making an assumption that the investigation started in 2017 rather than a particular investigation redredging through all these expeditions on a fishing expedition to somehow prove that Russiagate was a hoax. I'm referring to the John Durham special counsel. And so there's at least timing suggests it could have been Durham rather than the original leak investigation. Further emphasizing that is that DOJ sought metadata records from Washington Post's email provider. And the email provider said no, and the DOJ didn't stick with it. And that I find is really telling because if this was a leak investigation started in 2017 on those FISA leaks, I would have expected them to come out much sooner because those leaks were an abomination. Yeah, they were. So they were maybe just that... bad. They were an abomination and a betrayal of the implicit implicit agreement that allows the intelligence agencies to trample over people's liberties because this stuff has to stay secret. And there yeah. are a lot in the civil liberties camp that really were disturbed by those leaks. And, and, and there's some reason to believe that the, the leaks were wrong, too, that they said things about Sessions and Kislyak that Mueller has said, nope, that didn't happen. So uh, it may well have been motivated by some political uh, motivation, which I haven't quite figured out who would have been inclined to make that kind of a leak. But uh, it's almost worse that, that they might have been wrong. So you're getting all of the benefit of secret stuff and FISA intercepts, and then you're slightly tilting it. It's like a, a Russian disinformation operation. But in any case, it's far more disturbing from a civil liberties viewpoint if this was related to the Durham investigation rather than the original leak investigation. Yeah. Okay, let's do some quick hits. This is this is a quick hit, which is that the Facebook Oversight Board has said, uh, yeah, whatever, you can ban Trump for a while, but eventually you should make the decision and we won't. I thought uh, it was kind of, it is a punt. I think it's broadly described as a punt. I, I don't have much new to say about the coverage on this other than I was struck by the the minority views expressed saying that that human rights law would have required even tougher action against Trump. And for somebody who thought that the free speech was a fundamental element of human rights law, that's weird. Although I understand the theory that he was uh, encouraging racial discrimination, but the, the reference to the fact that his discriminatory speech included calling the virus that came out of Wuhan, China, a China virus. I, I, 
there might have been a time when you could say that with a straight face, but now that the information that's coming out strongly indicates that this probably was a man-made or man-designed virus coming out of uh, the Wuhan Virology Lab to say that's the one thing you can't call it is the Wuhan virus. I just think that's crazy. Nick, your namesake, Nicholas Wade, wrote a long piece on this that I thought was pretty persuasive. Uh, I know you're skeptical of it. Uh, give me a, give me a quick reason because it's not quite cyber law, but it is fascinating. Because if if this was uh, significant evidence of a lab leak, it would be published not on Medium. That there have been plenty of articles criticizing the CDC and WHO about their handling of this, and those get published no problem. Yeah, Medium, call, Medium calls this a 43-minute read, and I thought it was that and more. I, you, you're not going to get either Nature or the New York Times, where this guy, Wade, uh, has reported yes, to publish something that long. No, you're not. Well, look at how long Zenyep's pieces are on specifically analyzing the CDC and WHO's uh, complete reluctance to call an aerosol an aerosol. I think that's a fair failure to uh, engage on the merits, uh, and and so uh, saying well, it didn't appear in my kind of uh, a journal isn't a complete answer. It's an under, it's a reason to be skeptical, but I I just and uh, have you ever picked up an issue of Science Magazine? No. Should I add that to my weightlifting regime? They have no fear about seven-point font articles. The only reason the magazine doesn't need weightlifting is it is really small print. So I would urge people to read the article because I think it is quite compelling. And he's not, he, he does not say for sure it was a lab leak, but the evidence that there was a lab leak keeps piling up. I, and I would note that the intelligence community under both Biden and Trump has always said that they think that's a, a plausible narrative, a plausible alternative to the wet market or natural evolution theory. It's an open question at best. And to say, oh, well, calling this a Wuhan virus is a shocking abuse of Well, uh, let's human face rights. it, Stuart, it's not about Trump calling it the Wuhan virus. It's about him using the terms like Kung flu and clearly racist language because, let's face it, the guys are racist. <laughs> he may well be, but that's not what they said. They, they said it was because he called it the China virus. Uh, uh, all right, I, that's supposed to be a quick hit, but it wasn't. Nate, there's a new plan out. We're actually going to interview the guys who wrote it uh, so you can keep this short to deal with ransomware. Right? I don't know if you had a chance to go through it. Sounded like it was a compendium of all the pretty good ideas people have had over the last few years. Yeah, it's from the Institute for Security and Technology, which has a, very, a lot of very smart, capable people. They talked to a lot of other very smart, capable people and came up with 48 concrete recommendations, all of which 
sound wonderful as with most things the the tough part is getting those things across the finish line and getting the the people you need to do them to actually do them to tie this back to the, your first story today Seward, i think you're right to note that the the pipeline ransomware attack is something that could actually be felt by real people and may spur at least the Biden administration to action. And we have an opportunity here with some potential for political will on this topic. And it would be great to see them carry through on some of this. And I'm glad to hear you're interviewing them because they can do a much better job of talking about the substance of the report with the time they have because it's long. Uh, uh, can, listeners, please consider this a teaser. I, uh, I, and Nick, I, I love the emergence of Signal as like a corporate troll in chief. And they've done it again uh, after, after trolling Celebrite. Uh, now they're trolling Facebook. And brilliantly so. So they came up with an ad campaign that basically takes advantage of Facebook, uh, Instagram's hyper-targeting options to say this is an ad for you because of the hyper-targeting options. And they did some nice little GUI design on that and they submitted them to Instagram. And then Instagram pulled the plug on it and Facebook is denying, but Signal's got the receipts. Yep. So it, 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 here, here's one. You got this ad because you're a K-pop loving chemical engineer located in Berlin and you have a new baby just moved and you're already feeling those pregnancy exercises. Uh, so uh, it, it is a, a pretty personalized message and you can see why it would have gotten Facebook's goat. Yep. The other amusing thing is probably a lot of those ads were so hyper-targeted, they'd never actually get displayed to anybody. Yeah. Well, it certainly yeah, it looks like three people, uh, probably. And maybe they were really written just so that they could be displayed on the stories about the controversy. Oh, of course. <laughs> That's why it's such brilliant trolling. All right. Okay. And last uh, topic the FCC uh, uh, net neutrality proceeding last time around was marred by millions of comments that had, were generated by bots and bogus industry groups saying most of them said we don't like the net neutrality uh, rule but millions of the fake comments said we do like the net neutrality rule the new york attorney general grinding fine but grinding slow has finally figured out that three companies were responsible for a lot of the fake ads on the anti-net neutrality side and has fined them 4.4 million dollars uh, for doing it. I've never understood why this was such a big deal. It, it, I, it's probably because at the start of the process, when there were a lot of comments in favor of net neutrality, because Jon Stewart said, uh, Dingo's going to get your baby, a, a, that people started counting them as though it mattered. And then the anti-net neutrality guys said, well, we can fight that with uh, our own set of the phony comments. Uh, but the idea of counting postcards that say, oh, I don't like it, or I do like it, is dumb. Uh, comments that say that are useless to the decision maker and ought to be dumped as opposed to counted. So I'm kind of 
puzzled over the whole flap, but I, I kind of do understand why uh, it makes sense to pursue people who have submitted fake comments. I very much wonder why the New York Attorney General is doing it. Okay, I, uh, that ends our news roundup. I, I want to turn now to our interview with Bruce Schneier, who uh, is uh, well known to people who are on this podcast, technologist, privacy and security guru, and uh, adjunct lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. What I The reason I asked Bruce to come on for the interview section is he's written a, an interesting published paper on AI hacking, uh, and there's a lot of ambiguity about that, and he explores a lot of it in the paper. Hey, hi. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we're glad to have you, and why did you write this? So, so, so that's actually a long story. I was writing a book on hacking more broadly. What if we took notions of finding subversions and tricks and loopholes in other systems? like political systems, like economic systems, like cognitive systems. And I have this entire book that I'm writing, and I was writing it through the pandemic. And I realized, because it was due last month, that the book had to speak to a post-2020 world, and I had no idea what a post-2020 world needed to hear. So I put the book on hold for a year, let the world shake out a little bit, and realized that this chapter, or either these two chapters, chapter and a half, about AIs and hacking is something that hasn't been said yet. And I wanted to say it now. I didn't want to wait. So I took those two chapters, recast them into an essay, and then published it at the Harvard Kennedy School. So that's why it, it gave me something to do while I was stuck inside during the pandemic. <laughs> so I, it, it is, it, it's an interesting collection of thoughts. Can you summarize it? I'm not sure I could. Uh, so basically, I'm looking at a world where AIs become creative enough to find new hacks. And I think of hacks very broadly, right? The filibuster is a hack invented in ancient Rome as a way to delay business. Uh, tax loopholes are hacks. Hedge funds are full of hacks. All sorts of Things that the rules allow, but are unintended and unanticipated by the rules designers and somehow subvert the rules intent. Very broad definition. It's a human creative process. And we come up with these hacks and use them in all sorts of systems. What happens when AIs can do that too? And what will that do to society is really what I'm trying to think about. And that changes everything, you know, speed, scale, and scope. They do them differently, they do them faster. And we're kind of not ready for that. So I'm broadly exploring that idea. And if, okay. Well, so then, you know, let me, that, let yep, me give an example. I'll give an example of stars. So I think a tax code is a good example. right? It's not computer code, but it's a series of algorithms. It has inputs, has outputs. It's deterministic, or it's supposed to be. And there are vulnerabilities in the tax code. We call them tax loopholes. There are exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there's an entire industry of black hat hackers who try to find these exploits, tax accountants and tax attorneys. Right? So, so the analogy kind of holds. So this is this is the part you know I I, I enjoyed the article. Uh, and I hate to start out with the, the the one part that I wasn't completely persuaded with, but. 
there's an element of truth to your model and an element uh, that is not quite right. Saying this defeats the purpose of the rules is a value judgment and often not not a value judgment that everyone would share. That is to say- I'm not talking about, right, I'm not talking about a legislator who slips a loophole in because he's paid under or over the table by some constituent group. I'm talking about an accident, right? Something that nobody thought of and the tax accountants are studying the law and saying, wait, I know if we use US law and Irish law and Dutch law and an offshore tax haven, we can invent this double Dutch Irish sandwich and Google pays no tax, right? right? That's not something anybody thought of when they were designing Dutch and Irish and US and Caribbean island law. That is an unintended consequence of like four countries tax codes. Right. That's Uh, what I'm talking about. Although even then, people might not have said, I imagine this will all happen, but they may have made a perfectly rational decision that they were not going to take on the cost of trying to prevent what you describe as a hack because and, the and cost Microsoft of prevention does that all is too the high. time with its source right. right companies do all that time with the, with their source code and they're still hacks you're right lots of companies don't bother doing the testing doing the evaluation doing the source code analysis to get rid of computer vulnerabilities and they're hackable you're right sloppy uh, programming whether it's computer code or tax code is often responsible for this i think maybe even uh, people say i don't think that's going to happen enough to justify the overhead uh, uh, that it would take to stop it. Sure, and and right, and that's human thinking. When AIs are doing this, maybe it, it changes. And that's right, something- it changes right. the scope and scale yeah. of the hack and so what you thought was a tolerable cost becomes the entire system. And we worry about that, but we worry about that at ransomware right now. I mean, ransomware right now is might take down fuel distribution on the eastern seaboard. And there are probably a vulnerability associated with the initial hack that caused that. Right. So, yeah, the scale makes a big difference. And really what I'm trying to imagine is when this human process gets computerized. Now, it's not obvious that this is possible. I think probably I mean, so now it's not. So law is not computer code, right? Law right. has more interpretation, more flexibility. And, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's East Coast it's, code, as Larry Lessig once described it. <laughs> and, and, you know, as I mean, you know this better than I do as an attorney, that this is a creative process that needs humans. But what's interesting is pretty much in AI, every domain where an AI eventually takes over, the humans said, oh, they can't do this. AIs can never play Go. AIs can never evaluate x-rays. There's too much interpretation. There's too much creativity. There's too much innately human thought and then suddenly an ai does it what i say in my essay and this is important what i'm writing about is science fiction but it's not stupid science fiction right it's something it's, that we should at least it's think near-term about. science fiction <laughs> right you know it, it's going to depend on how well you can encapsulate the rules into a form a computer can understand right for go it's easy the rules are trivial, the board is trivial, there's nothing outside the rules. Like the tax code, it's laws, it's IRS notices, it's judicial rulings, it's interpretation, it's a lot fuzzier. Right. But 
you know, we are regularly surprised at AIs doing things we don't think they can. And I think this is worth thinking about. You know, I, I agree with you. you yes, the, there's a host of ambiguities in the code, but judicial decisions are not impenetrable to, to AI. And it's certainly They're possible. They're often impenetrable to me. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you need to think more like a machine. Uh, it, it, and you can you could set something up that says, okay, one dissenting decision from what seems to be a, a rule creates a little fuzziness and a little ambiguity about how how that rule will be applied. And four of them creates a conflict that is going to be resolved higher up. And if, if there is a decision from the Supreme Court, you can say, I'm going to not quite ignore, but practically ignore anything to the contrary that came before that in the lower federal courts. So there's a lot of rules that you could imagine adopting and a lot of fuzziness that you could incorporate that would give you the beginnings of a sense of how the rules shape out. Let me ask you a completely different question on, on this because there's been all this talk about how do we keep AI from getting out of control and creating, you know, turning us into paper clips in the one example. And one possibility, it seems to me, is if AI is that good at reading the law, why don't you just say to every AI engine you create, don't violate any laws? So you can. So, so the worry is whether an AI will break free of that. So just like the computer code we write has flaws, we're not perfect. We're probably not going to be perfect at figuring out uh, how to create that box securely. Right. And we're talking about AI's hacking. If there is a way to get out of the box, they will. So a story I tell in the paper, it's, it, I think it's worth talking about, is the Volkswagen hack. So you remember yeah. uh, several years ago, sure, they, Volkswagen they, they, engineers, they, they, right? They were caught cheating on emission control tests. Yes. They basically programmed the engine to recognize a test condition and behave differently. Yep. So it passed the tests, but on the road, it had way better performance because it behaved in ways that violated the uh, Until the a, a couple of West Virginia college students uh, tested it on the road. Right. So, so that, now, that was not an AI. That was a human deliberately right. cheating. But imagine if you fed an AI the rules here. Your goal is to maximize engine performance and pass all tests. Yep. An AI could conceivably come up with that, not realizing it's a cheat because it's, you know, it's the constraints didn't prevent it. And because the system is so opaque, nobody knows. Engine performance is great. The accountants are happy and nobody knows. And That's most Im most importantly, nobody from Volkswagen goes to jail because they all say, I didn't know. I, and they so didn't know. And they're right. right? Yeah. They just programmed the wrong goal. Now, you know, at this point, we know and we will definitely program the goal into the AI. You must have the same performance on the road and in the test. But there are going to be lots of those that we won't think of. Right. And AIs solve problems differently than humans. Yeah, you give the example of the uh, AI, which is told to run a race, and it discovers that it can run the race faster by just building itself higher and falling over and crossing the finish line. Right, and, and that's because the rules didn't prohibit that. So it figures out a new solution. I also think about, you know, the King Midas story. 
Right. And so Midas asks that everything he touches turn to gold, and then he finds he can't eat, he can't drink, he can't hug his daughter. Yep. Man, right? Midas programmed the wrong goal into the system. And if you were a human engineer producing a, I don't know, gold transmutation device, you wouldn't design it to kill the person who is holding it. Or, but well, AI you might. You, you might, might you, you, yes, exactly. Okay, you so, know you're doing that. We, yes. We humans understand context in a way I, AIs won't. Which is part of AI's charm, right? That's it, how they create, they creatively find solutions that we can't find. And sometimes they are perfectly legal solutions that no one, no one human would have uh, adopted, but for seeing the machine do it. That is, that's their strength. If they only do things that we can do, AIs don't help us that much. So this is like a fundamental flaw at the heart of artificial intelligence. They're willingness to, to to try things that work uh, that we would not have tried and their inability to tell us what it was that worked. That's right. And, and some of those will be hacks and some of those will be beneficial. It might be, you know, a clever way to uh, get carbon out of the atmosphere. You know I mean, just a brilliant move in a game of Go. Right. And some of them will inadvertently subvert the goals of the system. Okay. And I, I, I agree. that's where we're going to have trouble. So the thing that troubled me most about your story is putting that, the kind of ability of AI to go off and maximize on something without recognizing constraints that all humans would have recognized, and the eminent hackability of human wetware in which we just automatically respond awe when we see big eyes and a big head and a little body and a high squeaky voice. And if you create a robot that does that, people are going to treat it differently, even though it may intend to kill them. And this is something we have to think about because persuasive design is good now and it will get better. And we are trusting of robots, yep. where even though we shouldn't be, we are protective if they act childlike. And they're just pretending. They're not actually children. They're right. not actually authorities. And they're programmed often by someone, possibly against our interests. So right. you imagine, right, Alexa, your you know computer assistant at home, could suddenly be persuading you to buy things that, that benefit it. Right. You could, right, you could imagine a, a robot being paid by various advertisers to subtly modify your behavior. But we're going to treat them kind of like people because yeah. we kind of treat everything like people. In a two over one, we see a face. Right. And, you so, know, I, I love the story of the, the food delivery robot that actually could have had a bomb inside it that kind of bumps the door a few times saying, I want to deliver some food in here. And everybody opens the door for it. Because it's a cute-sounding robot. Yeah. So, so right. So, in a sense, we are being hacked ourselves. And, and I spend some time more in the book that'll come out than in the paper. I pulled a lot of it out on these cognitive hacks, right? these ways that technology is tricking our cognitive systems. Yeah. To to behave in a certain way, and that a lot of that is kind of the addictive designs of, of sites like Facebook. It's fake news and propaganda. There's so many different ways sure. systems are oh, and, leveraging and, our cognitive 
biases. We're more likely, I'm sure, to buy certain kinds of things after a breakup or when we're in our cups. And AI is going to recognize that behavior, even if it does not recognize that it's selling to drunk people. Did you just say in our cups? Yeah. Wow, you just dated yourself. That's an awesome (laughs) phrase. (laughs) So we're, we're drinking heavily. They're selling it to us. They know that it's Saturday night after 10, and I usually buy crazy shit then. And so all the AI knows is this is a good time to offer weird uh, products at a high price. But it is essentially uh, taking serious advantage of pretty much everybody. And we all have hacking points, vulnerabilities of one sort or another. And we have society really haven't looked at the limits of persuasion. And you, you'll remember, you remember subliminal advertising? Sure, the Vance Packard, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. So oh, the, yes. the idea was, I think it was largely a moral panic, yes. that there were hidden images in the smoke and cigarette ads and the ice cubes and liquor ads uh, of sex, of nudity, that, yeah. that in compelled or, people. Or, or popcorn ads in the movies, yes. The popcorn ads in the movies that flashed uh, yeah. so fast that you didn't notice them but your subconscious did notice them. So there were hearings about this. This was a huge moral panic, that right. this was sort of unfair. And if you think about what's being done today, I mean, that yeah. stuff is child's play. It is, and it, it's time for a new moral panic, and I think I can see one coming. So what, what lessons do you draw from this? What actually should we be doing about this moral panic? You know, so... Uh, it's not yet a moral panic. It's more something to think about because it's the future. Mm-hmm. And really what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say a couple of things. One is, you know, let's start thinking about this before it's a thing. Right. Because we tend to be better for a little proactive once in a while. And the other is to think about the offense-defense balance. Right? So in AI, we actually know in the end whether it benefits the attacker or defender. Like if an AI is attacking right our networks or defending our networks. This is a step beyond that. This is AI is coming up with novel hacks. So let's start, stick with computer code because that's already working. Okay. So AI is all, already finding vulnerabilities in computer code. Yep. They're not that good at it. They're getting better. And you right. know how this goes. In a few years, they'll be, they'll be better than humans at it. Yep. Now, so you can imagine attackers using this to find all sorts of vulnerabilities and using them to attack systems. Right? Attackers clearly will benefit from this. But the defenders will too, because if there's an AI that finds vulnerabilities in code, the defenders can run it on their code before they release it. So Microsoft has a new operating system, runs this, and fixes all the vulnerabilities. This capability is now built into computer compilers. We can imagine living in a future world where software vulnerabilities are a thing of the past. They don't happen anymore because the but AI feels, find them all. It, it fixed feels them. like this is what they call generative adversarial uh, AI. Sure, you've got one side is really good at finding and, and fixing the bugs, but there's somebody else, some other AI on the other side that is just as good and getting better because it's forced to get better at finding new bugs and exploiting them. They both get better. Right. But the, the, because the, the, the bugs are asymmetric. The ah, so you, you think there's a, there's, a, there's a point at which you reach zero bugs. Right, because they're all patched. Now, the danger is the, is <laughs> You the know, we've been waiting period. for that for 40 years, and I, That's it right. hasn't and, yet. and we can finally achieve it. But the uh, danger okay. is the interstitial period. All the software that's already been released and is hard to patch or can't be patched 
Yeah. Those they are the attackers win. Yeah. But in the future, the defenders win. So you can think about the same thing for the tax code. Right? You can imagine this AI that finds Mm -hmm. bugs in the tax code, and every tax law, every tax bill is run through this AI. Now maybe they don't get fixed because you're right, right. lobbyists want them. But we know about them, they become part of the political debate. And now, of course, the worry is the existing tax law. It takes years to patch the tax code. Someone finds a vulnerability in the tax code that reduces tax revenues by two-thirds. The country can't recover from that. Well, and that's why I I think it's not likely to to last. There there is a certain amount of income that the government needs, and if you – dramatically disappoint the government in its revenue needs, it will just go change all the rules. It, if it can. So the rule changing is hard and complicated. It's, it's not like Microsoft pushes a patch out overnight. It, it's a different process because it's right. It's a political process. So this is sort of the fundamental problem of being a parasite. Right? Parasites are successful if they're not too Until successful. they kill the, the host. Right. <laughs> so, right, the best diseases are the ones that keep their hosts alive long enough to reproduce. Right. right? If, the, if the disease kills the host immediately, the host dies, and then the disease dies. Right? Yeah. So, so there is this fine line you have to uh, thread. But I worry that laws can't be patched at the same speed of computer code. Now, that's, a, that's good. I mean, we wanted that. But when AI start hacking, that's going to be a liability. So let me offer you one gleam of hope. I want hope. Which is that litigation, until it's over, can be required to accept the rules as they stand today. Explain that, that better. So if you say, I'm looking at the tax code and... It says I don't owe any money, and the government says, "Well, no, you, you owe money," and you go to court, and then the tax code is revised. The new rule can be applied to the old facts, I, and so you can do what amounts to a retroactive patch in the middle of the attack. So, if that works, that is a fine defense, right? It. It may not work, and there are, you know, it's not a, it's a disfavored approach because you are retroactively changing the rules. But it but might be the you, only approach that works once yeah. AI start hacking the tax code. Yep. yep. Okay, Bruce, this is terrific. It was a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to your book, uh, and we'll have you on when it comes out to explain ah, it to that's us. That's like a year and change for now. <laughs> if you want the essay, you just type Bruce Schneier AI hacking into Google, and it pops up. And it's terrific. It's, it, it will make anybody who, has, who thinks they've thought about this think again. It's, uh, it's a delightful and typically Bruce Schneier accessible and challenging rethinking of the principles that apply in the field. So, Bruce, thanks very much. Uh, thanks also to Nate, to Nick, to uh, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 361 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 